So we're still looking at the stories that Jesus told and uh, coming near to the end of the finite set of stories that Luke reminds us about. Um, next Sunday will be the last of that set. But um, as we see the introduction to the story we're considering today, um, Luke gives us a little editorial comment, and he, he basically says, and Jesus looked at certain characters in the crowd, and he told them a story. So at, at this point, Jesus is, is cutting to the chase. He, he's not being vague. He's not you know, casting something out there, hoping that some people will get that it's about them. He now sort of looks right at them and tells a story that is to them. And we'll see who they are when we have a look. So I need you to start thinking with me today about a word. The word is uppity. Um, and I tried to think of a good synonym for the word uppity, but there's no word that, that quite captures uppity um, as well as uppity does. So to get you into that, that mind space, maybe this will help. Because there was this incredibly successful sitcom called The Beverly Hillbillies that was all about not being uppity, right? So here you had the, this, this family, this redneck family that came from their, their oil discovery and made their way to Beverly Hills. Who remembers the Beverly Hills? Okay, good, good. Um, and, and the lovely stuff that went on between them and like the Drysdales, right? So the Drysdales were the uppity folks and there was nothing uppity about the Clampets, right? Nothing uppity at all. So Miss Hathaway once um, said to Jed, um, did, um, did, did, did uh, your son uh, go to Eaton? And he goes, hmm, I don't know if I, knowing Jethro, he's been eaten since the time he was born. <laughs> so no uppityness for them. But Jesus was after uppity folks. So he told uppity folks a story. That's a very important story for us to hear. So it's about two men, <clears throat> two men who went into a temple, which sounds like the start of a joke. And I was tempted to go down that road, but I thought better not. Um, so two men went into a temple, and we're told that one of them was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. So if, if you know the cultural setting, then you know immediately that you have one that is a person of great stature and you have one who is thoroughly despised. So the Pharisees were revered. They were the thought police. They were um, the, the upper caste. And the tax collectors were hated. They were hated because they were Jews along with the rest of the Jews, but they were employed by the Romans. And they not only collected taxes that they thought, that the Jews thought the Romans didn't have any right to, but the way that the tax collectors survived was they skimmed off of the tax money that they collected. So Jesus is, is putting two, um, you know, completely opposite characters in this story. And he says two of them walked into the temple. And you know that the way Jesus tells stories is that whatever would be the normal way that the drama would unfold, it doesn't go that way when Jesus tells a story. So here's what we hear. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, and certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. So you get this guy, right? He walks in in his finery. Hello, good morning, hello, hello, hello. Lovely to see you, hello. Isn't life good? Uh, I'll be right over here praying right in front of you all. You can listen if you like. 
Dear God, it's me. Glad to see me, aren't you? Here I am. I paid my tithe this week. I've been fasting twice this week. And I, um, you know, I, I hate to, to blow my own horn, but quite frankly, I think I've got this sort of religious thing licked. Here I am. At the same time, there's another person, the tax collector, and we're told this, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. What a juxtaposition, right? What a contrast. The happy religious Pharisee and the miserable, shameful, despised publican who can't raise his eyes to heaven. He is, he is utterly downcast. He's downcast in his soul. He's downcast in his spirit. And finally, in a faltering voice, he's able to get out his prayer, which is, oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. We'll see that what Jesus says at the end of all of this, that there's one of them who goes home justified, and it ain't the Pharisee. So we've done a lot with the Pharisee stuff because Jesus just keeps talking Pharisee stuff. We've seen that Jesus is not going to allow us to have pride reigning in our lives, and he won't let the religious leaders get away with their prideful approach to governing the people and interpreting the law and all of that thing. But we haven't heard so much about this other side of it, the story of the tax collector, the story of what God is good at, which is being merciful. And the two prayers are fascinating in that what the Pharisee prays is very religious, but what the tax collector prays is very personal and very desperate. And Jesus says, and he is talking to the Pharisees. That's the beginning of the account in Luke. Um, He said to those who trust in their righteousness and have scornful attitudes towards others, he told them this story. So it's almost like he said to everyone else, you all be quiet, I'm talking to the gallery. Talking to the stuffed shirts all around you. And here's what I have to say to them. Righteousness is the currency of religion, the currency of a relationship with God. And here we have um, a Pharisee who believes that he qualifies for righteousness. He, he, he believes that he is a person who knows what is right and does what is right. And that would be a good definition of, of righteousness. Righteousness is, is a theme through the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a big doctrine of the Bible. And righteousness is what we don't have and what we desperately need. And so we are told that Christ has come to be our righteousness, that there's a transaction that has gone on, that Christ has become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, which is an an amazing transaction that is ours through what Jesus came to do. But what that points out is that our deepest need is righteousness. We are, as a humankind, not to start with, People who know what is right or do what is right. When we know what is right, we dismiss it from our heads. 
And when we're told to do what is right, we choose to do the other thing. Just like in all of our families, when you tell that little toddler not to go near the oven because it's hot and she'll get her hand burned, she will go right to the oven and try it out because we are prone to do what we're told not to do. I would love to claim that it's not that way with me. But when somebody tells me what not to do, I find that I want to do that thing. We were on holidays a few years ago with um, our granddaughter, Michaela, before she was very big and could read. So um, she said one day, Gramps, the, the only thing that, the only signs that I can read are the ones that tell me what I'm not allowed to do. I said, what? Because she could read the signs that were just pictures with red lines through them. And there was something about her saying that that indicated to me that she really wanted to do those things that she was told not to do. Paul says, I, I got to tell you what goes on in me. I agree in my head. I, I think I know what's right, but the doing what's right thing, righteousness is, is it's a challenge for me because I agree with what the law says. And when I try to do what the law says, I, not only can I not quite do it, but when it tells me what not to do, that's exactly what I want to do. So here's a grown man, follower of Christ, leader of the church, and he's saying, I've got trouble with this. Righteousness is a bit elusive still. Maybe not the knowing what is right sometimes, but certainly the doing what is right is a challenge for me. And he says, who's going to deliver me from this incredible conflict that I am? And then he goes on to tell us how it is that through the, the work of the Holy Spirit, he's led into living a righteous life. But the thing that was catching this um, Pharisee in his prayers was that it wasn't just a matter of being a righteous person in terms of knowing and doing what is right, but he was self-righteous. And the problem in this is that a person who's self-righteous has messed the whole thing up by taking credit for knowing and doing what's right. See, so righteousness is elusive, and there are two things you can do. You can try to work it up yourself and t take credit for it, or you can say, I am a miserable offender. I cannot for the life of me become a righteous person. The Pharisee took the wrong choice. He decided to become righteous, and in the becoming righteous in his terms, with his effort, remember what he told God, I've done all the things you told me to do, right? I, I tithe, I've fasted. You should be impressed with that. Because I'm impressed with that. And sometimes the way we know whether self-righteousness is our particular problem or not is to watch how we think about others. Because when self-righteousness has a hold of you, you will be someone who despises others. You will be someone who puts markers in place for others and lets them fail in your estimation on a regular basis. So righteousness is a good thing. That's what we need to think about. We don't have it. How do we get it? And Jesus says there's only one way to get righteousness. It's from me. But there's a whole religious movement into which Jesus comes. And that religious movement says, no, no, no. We don't need anything more than the careful study of the law that we have done. Thank you very much. So we know how to obey every law. We have worried it down to case law. And we can cite all of the things that would be necessary for you to keep that law or not keep that other law and have a look at us. Are we glorious or what? And when we go to the temple, we show up and God smiles down at us and says, there they are. There are those wonderful people who are righteous. 
And the Pharisee says, I'm thankful that I'm not like others. Uh-oh. Because there's the telltale that what he has is not righteousness, it's self-righteousness. And when you have self-righteousness, you get yourself in trouble because you also sometimes become uppity. And being uppity is haughtily imposing my right on others. Right? So righteousness is, in fact, knowing what's right and doing what's right. But it's elusive if we try to do it ourselves. And to bargain with, when we do it ourselves, then we take credit for it, almost for sure. And when we do, then we position ourselves in, in spots of judgment and assessment and uh, scorn of those that don't match our standards. And religion is full of that. Religion is full of uppity people. I, I've met my share of uppity people. They are people who talk a good game. Uh, there was one lady once, and she talked a good game. She was a seemingly righteous person by her own confession. And uh, one day we were having a conversation, and her, the conversation was kind of sort of over the top. I find that the Lord always is like this, and when we do this, and it was on like this. And I was just getting Irish. And she said, so I think we should pray about this, and the Lord will hear our prayers, and he always answers these sorts of prayers. So I said, yeah, I guess we could pray about it. But I think there's something else we need to... She went out into the lobby, and I was still trying to walk with her. She said, I can't believe that our pastor doesn't believe in prayer to anybody that cared to listen. Have you come across somebody like that? You know, they talk a good game. But when it gets down to it, they are imposing their righteousness on you, on somebody else. And they are judging somebody else on the basis of what they have established as the code of belief and code of behavior. Sometimes you can even be living in righteousness but get surprised by an attack from the rear by self-righteousness and by uppityness. And we have to guard ourselves against that. Because we are on a journey. We are on a journey of being transformed by the Holy Spirit so that we take on the full righteousness of Christ. And that is a journey that continues through all of life. And while more of the righteousness of Christ becomes mine and becomes yours, there is this other shadow side that comes creeping along and says, see, you're doing pretty well now. That's good. You, you, can, you can sort of slack off a little bit because you are now a good example of a righteous person. You should feel good about that. Check yourself out in the mirror and, and maybe write a book about how to be righteous because you, you've got that licked. The story, I think, tells us this. God is not impressed by uppity sinners. See, th- there's no question that this Pharisee was a sinner. He, he didn't know it. And every uppity person is sinful and a sinner, and we can only hope that they actually have experienced the grace and mercy of God so that they are in his family, that God's righteousness has come to them. But God is not impressed by uppity sinners. He's not impressed by a lot of talk. Um, that's why we're told, you know, to be very careful about being teachers. And, and you know, there's my confession that being a teacher is an awkward thing because 
it's, it's my job to talk about what's right and how to live right. But I don't, I don't get it many times. And so I have to stand up and, and almost be a professional phony, right? Because I, I don't have it figured out. And, and the, the older I get, the more questions I have, which is really strange. Because when I was young, I knew all the answers. I, I would come home from Bible college and go to a Sunday school class and be flabbergasted that these people didn't know stuff. And I knew it. And I told them I knew it. I was, I was always the smartest guy in the room. That's the way I saw it. What they saw it was a fellow that was too big for his boots, as my mom would say. The older I get, the less I'm sure I know. And the more confident I actually am that I better be careful about saying what I know and that I know, and by judging you on the basis of how I've sorted the world out. You see, we are in a precarious time in evangelicalism where what we think we know and how we think we should live is up for grabs and people on the street don't buy it anymore. They don't buy it because they don't agree with what we say we, we know. And when they look at how we live, they say, well, all the more reason I'm not interested because of what I see in the way you live. What we have to watch for is the fact that pride is, is our greatest liability. I struggle with pride my whole life long, and I bet you do too, because pride is actually the, the engine of all sin. It's what happened with Lucifer when he became this contender, and he said, I, I, I will ascend to the most high. I will establish my throne. I will and God says, no, you won't. And then in the garden, um, Adam and Eve, they mess up. And God comes along and he says, what, what just happened here? And he says to Adam and Eve, did, did you eat the fruit? And all of a sudden, Adam's pride kicks in, right? He says, oh, I have to save face here. And what does he do? He doesn't say, yes, I ate the fruit. I'm sorry. He says, she. She ate the fruit and gave it to me. It's her fault. And then she said, well, I'm not taking the blame for this. So she said, it's the snake's fault. And God already knew the snake was responsible, so he, he dealt with these two people. But then pride. I mean, what are so many of the stories of the Bible about, if not human pride? What is it that people trip up on more than pride? Here you have Saul, who was... Um, He's, he's, he's a pharisaical type of character. I mean, he is stellar. He's the best choice for king that, that could be found. And he starts out being pretty good at that. In fact, he's, he's quite humble at the start. And he's, you know, he's, instead of being at the coronation, he's hiding out among the baggage because he's kind of overwhelmed by what's in front of him. But by the time he has been king for a while, he begins to believe his own stuff. And he begins to take credit for his own stuff. And so one time, Samuel tells him that God has a job for him and says, now go and do this. It's to do with the Amalekites and their king and all that kind of stuff. And then Saul comes back and Samuel finds him. And Samuel has asked, where, where did Saul go? Has anybody seen him? And they said, well, yeah, he went down there to Gilgal. He's, he's um, erecting a monument to himself. And Samuel's going, what? So he catches Saul and he says, 
did you do what the Lord told you to do? And he says, yeah, I, I did. Blessed, blessed be you in the Lord. And Saul says, no, 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 because I'm hearing sheep bleeding, which is a dead, a dead giveaway. You were supposed to kill them. And, they were. and what does Saul do? He, just like Adam and Eve, he doesn't cave and say, yep, I get it now. I should have been thorough in what God, God told me to do. He said, well, yeah, I'm sorry. I think we did actually do what the Lord told me to do, and I think you're just being a little fussy about all of this. So can we please go and let us worship the Lord before the people? Why? Because it was pride. And pride was his undoing. And so when God said, I have found somebody who is a man after my own heart, and we discover that that means David, we're astounded because David commits the biggies, right? Adultery and murder. Did God not know this? But what God did know was that when Nathan the prophet went to David and said, you have sinned, David did not take the Adam and Eve approach. He said, I have sinned, and he fell in remorse and brokenness. And that, I think, is the difference. Pride got the better of Saul, and David knew that God was a God who would actually forgive, that God was a God of mercy. So if, if there's something that we want to think about, it's not how we can be the best we can be so that we can get credit with God for being that. We ought to think about where it is that we need mercy from God because that's what he's interested in dispensing. He's not interested in dispensing accolades to me or to you, ever. He's God. He gets the glory. We don't. You know, God says, I'm God, you're not. But God says, but if you need forgiveness, I have it aplenty. If you need mercy come to me. God's not impressed by uppity sinners, no matter how fancy they are, but he has ample mercy for penitent sinners. Is there anybody here today, no show of hands, needs to be forgiven for anything? So if you came here to show off, forget it, we're not impressed. You're not impressed with me, I'm not impressed with you. That's good, isn't it? We're all on the same level, a bunch of sinners saved by grace. But if you came here because you need to be forgiven for something, you came to the right place. And if you talk to God in those terms, not, I'm here, I've done all I should, don't you love me? But if you find that sometimes you barely can lift your head to even nod towards heaven, then God's attention is riveted on you. Because God loves to forgive. Isn't that crazy? that he is full of mercy, that he's full of grace. And Jesus said, okay, here's my talk today. It's for you all Pharisees who are so impressed with yourselves. God's not impressed with you, and nor am I. Uppity doesn't work with God. The tax collector, he knows he's a sinner. He's not uppity about anything. And he's beating his chest and begging God to forgive him. And Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. Pride's an awful thing. It will be our undoing if we let it. One of the beautiful Psalms of Ascent, 131 says this, O Lord, my heart is not proud. 
nor haughty my eyes. I've not gone after things too great, nor marvels beyond me. Truly I have set my soul in silence and peace, at rest, as a child in its mother's arms, so is my soul. Can we read that together? And I just want to ask you to just do a pride check. Um, Nobody's fooled. Not you. Not us. Not God. So we need to trust one another enough to say, we are not people who need to be impressive. We are all people who need to be forgiven. So let's drop the pretense. Let's not put on the airs any longer. Let's not be the Irish family that doesn't say it so it's not so, that has the secrets everywhere hidden away, right? So that's just my dysfunction. Yours is yours. We need to come and say, what we need is mercy. And God says, it's good that you know that that's what you need because that's what I have. But first of all, you've got to say, okay, pride, I'm done. I'm not going to try to save face anymore. I'm not going to try to impress you anymore. I'm not going to wonder what you think of me. I'm going to realize that actually you don't think of me. And I'm going to take care of business, me and God, and keep a clean slate with him because he's really good at forgiving. So let's read this psalm together and meditate on it as we make sure that we've at least checked in about pride in our lives. Say it with me. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor haughty my eyes. I have not gone after things too great, nor marvels beyond me. Truly I have set my soul in silence and peace, at rest as a child in its mother's arms, so is my soul. Doesn't it feel good to just confess pride and throw it away? To say, God, I'm not here to tell you that I did a good job of it this week. I'm here because, again, this week I need forgiveness. The prayer of confession of the church is a prayer that says, we have done those things that we ought not to have done. And we have left undone those things that we ought to have done. And there's no good in us. So Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy.